What's up, guys? This is Nate Burns from Rooted in Revelation Podcast, where we seek to make God's revelation our foundation and all of life. And with me, I got a special guest, Anthony Rogers. What's up, man? Hey, great to be on with you. Yeah, great to have you. So for my listeners that may not be aware of you, you mind sharing us, uh, sharing with us a little bit about yourself, a little testimony, as long as you want to go, short, briefs, whatever. <laughs> sure. Um so I was born and raised in Southern California. My maternal grandparents came here from Sicily in the 1900s and eventually migrated west. Uh, most of the family lives back east. And during my upbringing, I, among other things, kind of idolized something of our family background. And the brief backstory on that is just that uh, as, as many people will not be surprised, uh, Italians, as they came here, uh, organized themselves into communities. And out of that, eventually you get things like the mafia and stuff like that. And uh, my grandfather's namesake, he was actually named after his dad's brother, uh, Salvatore Tolaco, and he was the uh, lieutenant of Joe Perello, who was the original head of the Cleveland mafia. Uh, and I only mention that just to say that it, that was kind of a a thing for me that uh, had an impression on me. My my grandfather wasn't in the mafia or anything like that, but that whole culture, you know, sort of stood out to me. All of my relatives on that side of the family had this sort of bent to them. They they looked and sounded like anything out of one of these you know mafia movies and. Uh, at that time, and this is why it's relevant, at that time, gangs were surging throughout California. Uh, there was an influx of gangs down into our area, and I eventually fell in with, with gangs. At 17, my parents decided they had to get me out of that environment in their minds. They were good Pelagians. They thought uh, that changing my environment would change my uh, heart and my behavior, so they moved to Las Vegas, not exactly the best choices if you're looking to, you know, <laughs> it's, it was better than the one we were in, but it still had plenty of stuff to offer. And so I quickly fell in with similar sorts of people and started engaging in all of the regular activities. And eventually, when I turned 18, I went to prison and it was in prison that I started reading the Bible and eventually heard the gospel and was converted. I was released two and a half years later, and that was back in, I was, I was incarcerated in 1993, released in 1995. And the person who preached the gospel to me was a PCA minister. So the first church I went to upon release was a PCA church in Las Vegas, Nevada. And my desire ever since then was to pursue a seminary education and be ordained and serve the Lord in, in some relevant capacity. Uh, ultimately, what I had hoped to do was become a minister to prisoners. And a number of other things were also happening around this time. I was engaging in evangelism, and that quickly got me interested in apologetics. So simultaneously with my desire to pursue seminary and uh, everything that was necessary for that, for example, I had to go back and get a high school diploma because I, I wasn't exactly being a good student during those pre-prison days and didn't graduate. So I had to go back and get a high school diploma. Then I had to go back and get a college degree and then eventually was able to go to seminary. But 
my goal was to uh, be a pastor of prisoners, but I thought that was something that I would have to do way down the road after I was older, my kids were grown, I could support it because obviously prisoners aren't going to be able to uh, support you. They're not going to be able to supply your income like a, a church would if you're a pastor. So I thought that was something way down the road, and I'd become a pastor of a particular church somewhere uh, until that was feasible. Uh, but in the Lord's providence, uh, after graduating seminary, I uh, landed upon a prison ministry job. I serve with Metanoia Prison Ministries, which is a branch of MNA, Mission to North America, which is the missions agency of the PCA. So I'm ordained in Calvary Presbytery of the PCA and serve in that capacity as a prison minister. But I also do a bunch of stuff related to apologetics. I uh, regularly engage Muslims, doing formal debates, uh, going to mosques, you know, evangelizing on the streets, uh, writing uh, doing stuff on YouTube. So I, I do a whole variety of things in addition to the prison ministry. So I, I may have skipped, uh, some things there and, and, uh, left out, maybe I left some gaping holes, but that's, that's my, my story in a nutshell. No, that's great. And real quick for my listeners, what is the name of your, uh, YouTube channel that you do? your? Uh, it's, it's just under my name, nothing clever. It's just Anthony Rogers. I probably should have, uh, a, a different name, but uh, what happened was I never intended to do what I'm doing with it now. I just had it under my name. You know, that's the name I was browsing YouTube under, and I've had it for I don't know how many years. And only, only within the last year really have I started uh, putting stuff on it. So, mm. yeah, I just left I just left my personal name on there, but right, no no intention of you know uh, there, there was no vanity there. You know, it's not. Uh, uh, it's not about Anthony Rogers, but, uh, yeah, that's one of these days I'll come up with some clever name. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, Hey, it sticks. And, and once you kind of get a following and, and it seems like you have a decent crowd following you. So if you change it, you know, it's kind of like, well, why, you know, because everyone already kind of knows the deal, you know, it's like trying to change like Coke to some other name, you know, <laughs> it's like, you just, yeah, messes it all up. Yeah. 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 And I, I've had a number of things that have happened that have caused the channel to surge a little bit. I'm by no means a YouTube celebrity or anything like that, which is a good thing. I mean, I do want a lot of people to watch it, but I'm not a celebrity type individual. Uh, I, I meet people sometimes that have, that have benefited from what I do, and I'm very grateful for that. But there are times when I get this impression that they've kind of gotten a view of me that goes beyond uh, what... Uh, uh, you know, I'm comfortable with, right? I'm, I'm just a guy. I was saved out of prison. Uh, love the Lord, pursue his word with a passion, seek to proclaim it and defend it. But uh, beyond that, you know, I don't, I don't think uh, of myself as, uh, you know, uh, well, I guess since I'm wearing a Top Gun shirt, uh, I don't think of myself as Tom Cruise or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's great, man. Yeah. So, so, um, well, that's cool that you're in the PCA. I'm in the PCA. So we got some, some allegiance there. Um, I recently just became a confessional Presbyterian, maybe, maybe a year and a half ago and finally got involved in a, in a PCA church up in uh, Orchard Park, New York. So 
um, it's been wonderful, man. It's been uh, such a growing experience. So many things that uh, I just never thought about that I've been developing and growing in, you know, so it's been a good time. Ah, very cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so, Anthony, what's what's some of your favorite things that you like to dig into? I noticed you mentioned Islam, and I know you do a lot of stuff with the Trinity and the Old Testament and and all kinds of things. Um, so, how do you how do you get involved in those kind of topics? Was it just you know getting in conversations with people, and it just kind of led you to start studying those things out, or? Yeah, so there were a combination of things. One is when I was converted in prison. I was overwhelmed with the knowledge that God had forgiven me. And I assumed that same joy would, you know, carry over to others that, uh, you know, from my perspective, I hadn't heard this good news. And I'm sure that at some point in my life prior to that point, I had heard, but at that point didn't have ears to hear. And so it just sort of you know, passed me by. But uh, when I heard it was, it was just overwhelming to me. And I started telling other people. And remember, I'm in a prison context. My assumption was that other people would respond to this with the same joy that I had. And I quickly found out that people weren't uh, overly excited about what I had to tell them. And that meant that I was getting pushback. And that's what got me interested in apologetics. And so among the groups that I was encountering in prison, there were Jehovah's Witnesses, there were Mormons, uh, there were Muslims, there were members of the Nation of Islam, you name it, every group under the sun had its representatives in the prison. And all of them were anti-Trinitarian. So that accounts in part for my interest in the Trinity. I also engaged Jewish people, Buddhists, and just out of that, one of the common threads I saw in all of them was a rejection of the God of Scripture. And since, any, I mean, anybody that has a good understanding of systematic theology will recognize that the doctrine of God is fundamental to everything else. And so I realized this was an important issue to focus on. Uh, but also I had an immediate love for what the Bible said about God as triune. Quite independently of these groups, to me, the doctrine of the Trinity stood out not as this thing to sort of scoff at or, uh, you know, to have trouble with and stumble over. Rather, I, I looked at it as uh, a, 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 you know, a beautiful thing. You know, the revelation of God in Scripture is to me beautiful. And uh, so I would read the Bible and I'd hear these objections, and I'd think, well, what are these people reading? Because as I read the Bible, this sort of stuff is leaping off the page at me. I can't get past the first chapter of Genesis before I hear God speaking in the plural, right? Genesis one twenty six, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Much later, after learning that sort of thing, which is right there on the surface in the English translations, I, I came to understand that there was a whole lot more going on in Genesis that reinforces and fills out the plurals that are used there. But even at that initial stage, I, I saw this and I thought, you know, this is surely something to uh, take into account. Uh, you get to the third chapter, and again, you, you hear uh, God say, uh, behold, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And one of the things about that that sort of stood out to me is I often heard people say, and this is a common canard, I heard people say things like, 
let us make man is just a plural of majesty. At the time, I didn't know Hebrew, and I couldn't respond as I would today and say there's no such thing as a plural of majesty in Hebrew with respect to verbs and pronouns. That's pointed out by numerous scholars, you know, Taylor Lewis, uh, Gerhard Hazel, uh, Emil Rodiger, uh, Gesenius, uh, on and on it goes. Uh, but anybody just reading it in Hebrew knows that there's no such thing as a plural of majesty. Uh, but when you get to the third chapter and God says, behold, the man has become like one of us, you realize that even if there were such a thing as a plural of majesty, that's not it. Because the text doesn't say man has become like us. It says like one of us. It's partitive. It indicates one of a group. And so uh, that was surely curious to me. And then you get to chapter 11 and God at the uh, Tower of Babel incident uh he says, come, let us go down and there confound their language. Once again, if you read the context, the us, you know, let us go down and confound their language is said in response to the tower builders saying, come, let us build a tower or, you know, come, let us make a name for ourselves. Twice they speak in the plural. And so if that were just a plural of majesty, then it would mean one person is building a tower and making a name for himself, which of course makes no sense. Right, that's not what's going on there. So clearly, this is an indication of of personal plurality. Now, of course, I've also heard other people since then try and give other explanations for this. Uh, some would say it's God referring to the angels, and I always thought that was problematic. You know, God says it's a cohortative. Let us make, which means that those who are being addressed are being addressed as. Uh, you know, co-workers with him in creation. Moreover, man is said to be created in their image. And just to fast forward on all of this, you, you get to the New Testament, and it's very clear that the image of God in which we were made is the image of Father, Son, and Spirit. It's into that image that we're being conformed or remade or recreated, right? Scripture speaks repeatedly of us being conformed to the image of Christ. It speaks of the Spirit as the agent of that transformation. And so Father, Son, and Spirit, according to the New Testament, are the agents who are recreating man into the divine image. And moreover, that image is the image of the Father, of the Son, and of the Spirit. Uh, and, and there's more that could be said about the Old Testament along these lines that, that shows that uh, the, the Trinity is not a purely New Testament doctrine. I mean, in the sense of it doesn't originate in the New Testament. It has its roots in the old. Uh, but so I, I started noticing these things on my own. Uh, of course, I was in a context where people were pushing back against this, and I had this natural love for what Scripture had to say about these topics. So all of my Trinitarian interests uh, are, are really uh, uh, born out of all of that. And that hasn't stopped to the present day. I mean, I, I continue to read scripture and, and marvel anew at uh, something I hadn't seen before or some new connection or, or what have you. And uh, But also, you mentioned Islam. So I because I was surrounded by Muslims, I became interested in Islam. When I, when I was converted, I was given five books uh, immediately upon my conversion. Uh, so I already had a Bible. And I had read it twice by this time. I had only been in for a few months, but I had a lot of time on my hands, so I had read it twice. And I was given uh, Burkhoff's Systematic Theology, and that that was quite a doozy because at the time, 
I had, I was 19 years old. And remember, I didn't graduate from high school. I was kicked out of every high school I had ever been to. And I could read, but I didn't have a great education. I could read well. That was probably the one thing I could do well. And I'm picking up this systematic theology, which is, you know, pretty academic, anybody who's read Burkhoff and, uh, but I pressed through it. I, I forced myself to read through it and read through it more than once, uh, because the first time I read it, I knew I was only going to pick up 20% of it. And I thought, you know, maybe next time I'll, I'll pick up another 20 or 30%. Uh, but then another book that I was given was Fox's book of martyrs, um, Lorraine Bettner's Reform Doctrine of Predestination, and a fourth book was Islamic Invasion, written by Robert Morey, uh, who's who's now deceased. But uh, I can't I can never remember what the fifth book was. So apparently it didn't leave a, a huge impact on me. But so one of the first books I got was on Islam, and that was because there were a lot of Muslims there. The person re recognized that that was relevant to our situation. So uh, that's that's where all that was born, and I you know I got out in '95. I started witnessing to people, continued to talk to Muslims. Eventually, started writing for Answering Islam, uh, and then doing moderated debates with Muslims. I I've done like six debates within the last um, last year, just with Shabir Ali alone. And Shabir Ali is a, a veteran Muslim debater. Uh, so yeah, that's. Uh, that's where a lot of that uh, came from for me. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, Shabir Ali, he's, um, yeah, I I didn't realize he debated other people other than, uh, I think, was it James White that debated him a couple of times maybe or once or twice? I'm they, not sure, but. They've debated several times. I couldn't give you the number, um, but they have debated quite a few times. And, and part of that is, well, I mean, you've got two guys that both like to debate, so uh, Dr. White has, I mean, I don't remember his number. He'll, he'll often mention it, but, uh, Shabir Ali will debate at the drop of a hat. I think it's almost like a career for him. Uh, so when you have that mixture two people that are, you know, willing to debate, uh, it's not hard, you know, you, it's not hard. You think of a topic and you say, Hey, he'll debate it. Um, but yeah, Shabir Ali, he, he's been around for decades. Uh, he's debated, William Lane Craig, Mike Lacona, uh, Nabil Qureshi, David Wood. I mean, he's, he's debated quite a number of people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, yeah. So how do you, uh, how do you enjoy that experience? Was it pretty fun and interesting for you to be able to talk with, uh, one of the top notch guys on their side? Oh yeah. So my own, uh, history with this is I, I wanted to debate Shabir Ali a long time ago. So the fact that we've debated six times in the past year has been very gratifying to me. I wish we had debated sooner in the Lord's providence. You know, I, I, uh, I realized that, uh, there's, there's probably good reason we hadn't, but, um, yeah, I was excited when that finally came about and I'll be honest, and I'm not saying this out of any kind of personal arrogance or anything like that. Uh, I would encourage anybody to go back and listen to our first debate. Uh, we did, we've done six debates. We've done two on each occasion. So really there's been three occasions where we've done two debates. It's usually a Christian topic and a Muslim topic. 
So the first round of debates that we did, one was on the Trinity, the other was on Tawhid, Islam's doctrine of God. And, you know, I, I, I don't know anybody who thought that uh, Shabir did well in that debate. And that's not just a Christian assessment. Not, I mean, it's not just mine. I mean, it was a general Christian assessment, but uh, even Muslims were pretty put out by his performance. And so I was surprised that he wanted to do debates after that. Um, but I, I mention it, you know, again, not, not out of any kind of personal aggrandizement or anything, but because, like I said, uh, I, I have thought about these issues for decades and have long desired to debate Shabir. And so it was almost like 20 years worth of uh, waiting and it finally being realized. And uh, I was thankful to God that things, things went as well as they did. So uh, that's my two cents on it, at least. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So for my listeners, I mean, what is Islam? You know, it, what, what would be, uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that, you know, since uh, I actually recently just had a neighbor move in who is, um, um, is a Muslim. And um, so I was, I was mowing my grass and he came outside and I met him and I told him that I have a Christian podcast. He's like, Oh, I'm, I'm religious. And he's like, I'm Muslim. And so he's from Afghanistan, maybe about six years ago, but he's a really nice guy. So, um, but I, I've been having to get into books and start training. Cause I need to start, you know, trying to get some <laughs> conversations with him, you know, but uh, yeah, well, w- one way to approach it is to say that Islam is the religion. If there is one that dies, the death of a thousand qualifications and that, that way of speaking comes, I think, initially from Anthony Flew, who was a uh, agnostic, uh, eventually turned uh, deist of some sort, and then then died. But um, uh, what Anthony Flew was trying to argue is that Christianity makes certain claims, but then it has to keep qualifying them and qualifying them and qualifying them in order to avoid this, that, or the other criticism. Now, there that's been responded to by Christians, but. I really think it sticks when it comes to Islam. If, if you were to talk to a Muslim and he were to try and appeal to you to try and move you over to his position, he'd make all sorts of claims. And as soon as you start talking about certain issues, he's going to start, he's going to eventually be, you know, engaged in a bunch of retractions. So initially what, and it's sort of like a little bit like Mormons when they come to your door if anybody's experienced a, a couple of Mormon missionaries, they'll come to your door and they'll want to say everything uh, nice, everything that sounds good. There, there, there's all sorts of language that's common between Christians and Mormons. They don't mean the same thing by most of it. And in principle, they couldn't because Mormonism's its own worldview, its own religion. And so even if the terms are the same, the, the content of those terms has to mean something else. Uh, but a Mormon will come to your door and he'll say, you know, we believe in Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Spirit. And, you know, we believe that Jesus died and He rose again, and, and we want you to be part of the church. And, and Joseph Smith was a prophet for these latter days, and uh, he revealed to us that Jesus spoke to people in the Americas. And, and, and a lot of that sounds similar to Christianity with the only but apparently insignificant additional facts of Jesus speaking to people in America. 
But speaking apparently from what you've heard from the Mormons at this point, speaking apparently the same truths that everybody else has already believed. Uh, but if you start pressing a Mormon to tell you what he means by God, what he means by Christ, what he means by the Spirit, you find out that you're not talking about the same thing at all. In fact, your your positions are worlds apart. And when I say worlds apart, uh, th there's something more literal there than, than might initially suggest itself to a person. According to Mormons, their God, God the Father, is actually a man who inhabits a planet, and he has a wife, in fact, multiple wives, and is producing spiritual offspring who have the potential to become gods and rule over their own planets. And what's true for us, the, the potential to become gods and rule over our own planets, is what was potentially possible for God the Father and became an actuality when he did what we are in a position of attaining to now. He, he actually became a god. So there was a god before him, there was a god before that god, you know, and there's gods all the way down, right? Uh, so uh, not to go through that whole spiel on Mormonism, but you see that the terms mean one thing to us, and once you start looking into them, they, they turn out to be another thing entirely. Well, Muslims will say that they believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They believe uh, that he made the world, that he governs the world, that he sent prophets to mankind, including those biblical prophets we're all familiar with, uh, and they would refer to certain people as prophets. We don't usually use the term prophets for uh, some of these figures, but uh, they're still, you know, they're using the same name. So they'll talk about Adam as the first prophet. They'll talk about Noah. Uh, they'll talk about Abraham, uh, Isaac, Jacob. They'll talk about David uh, or Moses before that, and then David, and then on down to Jesus. And so a lot of this sounds similar. They believe also that the prophets gave us written revelation. So they not only spoke, but they wrote things down. And the Quran, which is Islam's book, what, what they claim to be the scriptures that were given to their prophet, uh, the Quran mentions not only previous prophets, but it mentions the Torah, so the first five books of the Bible, the law. Uh, it mentions uh, the Zabur, which is a reference to the Psalms of David, and it also mentions the Injil, or Evangel, or Gospel. And, and then, of course, it mentions other prophets that we know certain books are ascribed to, and it, the, the Quran doesn't necessarily mention those books by names, but it mentions those prophetic figures whose names are attached to them. And so a Muslim will talk about this sort of thing, and then he'll say that Muhammad was just another prophet in that long line of prophets, uh, what you have in the Quran is a continuation uh, and confirmation of what came before it, and this sort of thing all sounds good until you start asking about other things. You ask them what their view of God is, uh, they'll tell you that uh, Christians believe in three gods, they'll tell you that uh, Christ is not God, Jesus didn't even die on the cross, according to most Muslims, and they base this on a traditional understanding of a particular verse of the Quran, uh, Surah 4, 157, 
but that verse has been interpreted differently by Muslims. But the standard view is that it denies the crucifixion. They certainly deny that anybody could die for the sins of another. And uh, so if they deny the crucifixion, they also deny his resurrection. Uh, they don't think of salvation being by grace through faith alone. And so now, one problem that should immediately suggest itself to you is, well, this is all at variance with what the Scriptures said. So if the Quran is a continuation and confirmation of those Scriptures, how do they start putting these things together? It's re their rejection of the triune God, their rejection of the deity of Christ, of his incarnation, his perfect life, atoning sacrifice, and victorious resurrection. None of that comports. So uh, at this point, now enter the qualifications. Now suddenly they will start saying things like, well, the Bible has been corrupted. Now the Quran doesn't say that, but Muslims today are forced to say that. Initially, when Muhammad was making these claims, this was in 7th century Arabia, there were Jewish tribes and there were Christian groups, but the scriptures had not been translated into Arabic. And so Muhammad could make claims and make some progress with other Arabs because nobody could really check that. And whenever the Jews or the Christians said, no, that's not what's in our revelations, Muhammad would say they're liars. Uh, but later Muslims became more aware of what's actually in those scriptures and realized that's not going to cut it. We're going to have to say not just that they're liars, but that those scriptures have been corrupted. And so now what do you do with that original claim? We believe in the previous scriptures. Uh, the Quran is a confirmation of them. Now those previous scriptures have been corrupted, and what the Quran is confirming is not those scriptures that we have, but something that no longer exists or something that's no longer pure. Uh, and then a number of other things, you know, follow. You know, one domino goes down and a bunch of other dominoes go down. One of the things I brought up to Shabir Ali in one of our debates, uh, this is one of our more recent debates, uh, it was, can we trust uh, the Quranic view of Jesus? So the Quran is their book, which they say is uh, continuous with the Bible. Uh, and one of the things I pointed out is, according to the Quran, Allah originally gave the Torah, but that was corrupted. Allah originally gave the Psalms of David, but those were corrupted. Allah originally gave the gospel, but that was corrupted. And now we're being asked the question, can we trust the Quranic view of Jesus? When we look at this God's track record, and here I'm just, you know, this is just good uh, apologetic method here. Uh, in, in Proverbs 26, it says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceits. So his folly, this Muslim's folly, is all the sorts of things I was just talking about, that he claims that his God is the one who's responsible for these previous revelations which have since been corrupted. And so now, see, the normal tendency of Christians is to push back against that. No, the scriptures have not been corrupted. And of course, I would affirm that. The scriptures have not been corrupted. But uh, for the sake of showing him, Shabir Ali and other Muslims, the error of their ways, I'm taking that assumption for granted and now making them live with it, right? So I'm saying, you know, live up to your own presupposition here. And if their presupposition is that Allah gave those revelations, they all became corrupted, why should I trust him now, right? How do I know that the Quran is 
a pure word from God and not like all these other botched efforts of his, right? He has a track record of zero. He has a success rate of zero, right? He has no wins and, and all losses. And the illustration I gave in the debate was imagine a person who wants to get hired at a hospital as a heart surgeon, and they're looking at his previous job history, and they see that this person has lost one patient after another because he's constantly messed up the job. He's constantly uh, engaged in malpractice. Now, uh, you know, no, no hospital is going to take this guy on. They're going to say, we can't trust this guy. We can't rely on this guy. Now, Shabir Ali's response in that debate was to say, well, Allah didn't intend for those revelations to remain pure because he wanted the Quran to be his perfect revelation. He wanted everybody to come to this book. And I said, okay, let's go back to the scenario, the man in the hospital trying to get a job. Suppose he, in order to get the job, says, I didn't intend to do a good job on those previous occasions uh, because I wanted to show how good of a surgeon I am now. Uh, you know, is, is the hospital going to hire him? I, I don't think so. Uh, are you going to let him work on you? You know, <laughs> uh, I wouldn't. Um, and anyway, so uh, here, Hopefully people get an understanding not only of something about what Islam is and what it teaches, but also something of how you can reason with a Muslim and argue against Islam. Uh, there are a number of other things uh, that are of interest. Uh, their particular view of God, which I haven't said much about. Uh, they reject the Trinity, of course, but their conception of God is essentially Unitarian. But uh, what's interesting is if you look at the Quran, uh, like I said, all these terms end up meaning something else. When they say God, Christians ordinarily think of a being who's, well, classically reformed. Uh, people will say that God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, right? Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, and that's not distinctive to reformed Christians. Christians across the board would affirm that uh, confession. And uh, that's what you're assuming the Muslim believes. And that's the impression that the Muslim will give you. He created the world, he sustains the world, that sort of thing. But as you start reading the Quran, and not just the Quran, in addition to the Quran, Muslims believe in what are called the, the Hadith. And the Hadith are uh, allegedly traditions that come from Muhammad and are passed down uh, from one uh, narrator to another. And they have this whole science that allegedly demonstrates that these things do go back to Muhammad. Uh, but those traditions that they consider to be reliable, those traditions, in, in addition to the Quran, when you look at all of these things, you begin to learn that the God they're talking about is nothing like what you assumed they were talking about, and, and maybe not even anything like the Muslim initially thought he was talking about. In those sources, uh, Allah is described as having literal anatomical features, for example. Uh, and sometimes when I bring this up, and I know I've been long-winded here, so I'll, I'll stop in a moment, but uh, normally when I bring this up, the, and I, so I always want to cut this off at the pass, people want to say, hey, the Bible uses language for God, talks about hands and, and his nose, right? For example, it says that uh, at the blast of God's nostrils, Pharaoh and his armies were congealed in the sea. Right, we don't take that to mean God has a big nose, right? Um, in Exodus 15, it says God is a man of war. We don't take that to mean God is literally a man. 
numerous other passages could be given. Talk about the arm of the Lord, the hands of the Lord. Psalm 19 says, "By uh, uh, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of His hands." Right? We take these things anthropomorphically. And I would allow that same sort of thing for the Quran. So when I read it saying that everyone's before his face or something like that, my inclination is not to say, oh, let's make this mean that he literally has a face. However, the more I studied the Quran and the Islamic sources, the more I realized, no, the, the, these sources mean these things quite literally. And so I give you an example. Um, in Surah 3875, it says, that Allah commanded the angels to prostrate to Adam, right? Which is already a problem for Islam because prostration is supposedly to be rendered only to God. And yet here, Allah is requiring the angels to prostrate to Adam. And they have their excuses for that. That's not germane to my point now, but uh, it goes on to say they did so except for Iblis, which is the name for Satan in the Quran, uh, and then it says he was of the evil ones. And then Allah comes and he upbraids Satan. And he says, how can you refuse to bow down to someone that I created with my own two hands? Now, when you think this through and you realize, so some Muslims have wanted to say, well, it just means that, uh, you know, it just it's just figurative, right? Allah created him with his hands, just like you say God created the heavens with his hands. Uh, so it's just a figurative way of speaking about God's power. So his hands refer to his power. And like I said, I, I would initially be inclined to believe that sort of thing. However, what's happening here is this is the stated reason why Satan should have bowed down to Adam, precisely because Allah created him with his two hands. And so if this is just a way of talking about Allah creating Adam with his power, then it would give license to worship or bow down to everything. Right, because everything was created by God's power or his hands, if that's just figurative for his power. And so if Satan is told, you know, you should have bowed down to him because I created him with my own two hands, and that just means his power, then he should have bowed down to everything. And everybody should, right? Well, then when you look at the Hadith sources, it, uh, it, it becomes even more clear because the Hadith talk about the day of judgment, for example. So these, remember, are the traditions of Muhammad. The Hadith talk about the day of judgment lasting for like 50,000 years, and people are going to be standing there waiting for Allah to judge them. And they're going to become so anxious during this period of time that they're going to seek out individuals that they hope can intercede for them with Allah. And they're going to look for somebody who stands out as special and potentially can uh, have some sway with Allah. Well, According to these narrations, and there's just numerous narrations of this sort, uh, they're first going to go to Adam, and they're going to say, please intercede for us. And the reason they think Adam will have this special privilege with Allah is because, as they say, Allah created you with his own two hands. So this is what sets Adam apart and makes him, in their eyes, potentially able to intercede with Allah. But then Adam's going to say, I sinned, don't go to me, you know, go to Noah, right? And uh, uh, and then it's uh, Noah's going to say, go to Abraham, and then Abraham's going to say, go to Moses, and then Moses is going to say, you know, uh, go to David, David's going to say, go to Jesus. But each prophet in this line here that people are going to all have something special about them that's noted in the Hadith. So Abraham, for example, is called the friend of God. So they go to him and they say, you're Allah's friend, 
you know, so Allah will hear you, right? And then they're going to go to uh, Moses and they're going to say, Allah wrote the Torah for you with his own hand. You know, he'll hear you, uh, you know, but the point is this, each person has something special, some characteristic that sets him apart from the others. And what is it in the case of Adam that sets him apart? It's the fact that he was created with Allah's two hands. Uh, there are other narrations where it talks about Allah stroking Adam's back after creating him and bringing out all of his progeny and making them stand before him and confessing him as the only God. And then Allah putting everyone back into Allah or into Adam, uh, you know, so that when everybody's born, they already know who Allah is because we've already stood before him. Um, I mean, so on and on it goes now, but, but here's, here's the point of that. This is a very different conception of God, and the, and the sources speak not only of his hands, they speak of his eyes, multiple eyes, in fact, not two eyes, but more than that. They speak of Allah having two hands, and in fact, say two right hands, because it's beneath Allah to have a left hand. They speak of Allah having a shin, of Allah having feet, and it's not just the Islamic sources that I'm arguing can be read this way. That's how they've been read by Muslims. Not every Muslim, some will be more clever than others in trying to get around that, but I really do think they're trying to get around it. But it, it's it's been a very strong strain in Islam uh, to take those things quite literally. So, for example, the most vocal Muslims today, the most vocal Sunni Muslims are Salafis, uh, or people are probably more familiar with the term Wahhabi, right? The 9-11 the hijackers were Wahhabis. Uh, Osama bin Laden was a Wahhabi. Uh, all these guys were Wahhabis. But the, the term in Islamic circles is Salafi, or some of them might use the term Athari, which, which is just a way of referring to their particular creed uh, with respect to uh, Sunni Islam. So anyways, um, if, if this is their God, it's not the God of the Bible. It's not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's not what you initially thought they were talking about. Right. So that's part of what I mean when I say that Islam dies the death of a thousand qualifications. Uh, they come to you. They say, here's what it is. Believe this. There's a lot of stuff that sounds similar. You think, oh, not not too far off, at least on these things. And uh, some of it, you know, they, they make sound appealing because they'll say our concept of God is very simple. Your concept of God is very complex. Uh, but once you start pressing into it, you realize it's not as simple as they want it to appear. Uh, so uh, I'll, I'll stop there with that, but uh, hopefully that gives you at least a, a starting uh, point in your further expl exploration of Islam. Yeah, yeah, it is. That's, that's super helpful, actually, because um, one of the, I'm trying to think, uh, some of the um, kind of like evangelistic kind of phrases that uh, my neighbor even shared with me was very similar. You know, Bible has been corrupted. We have a long line of prophets and you know, and, and we're even talking to about like radical, we're talking, it was right after um, all that stuff was going on in Afghanistan too. I was like, Oh, what's your thoughts on that? What's going on? You know, because everybody's, you know, America's getting out of there. All these people are trying to get out of there. And um, he's like, you know, uh, Allah gives us many other ways to deal with these things. It doesn't have to be violent. And, and he was kind of going through a list of how, you can you can read his law and you can do things in ways that uh he gives you many options that you don't have to do you know the violence that the radicals seek out to do and he says they give 
you know, the Muslims a bad rap because they're radicals and they're doing things that, in other words, he was kind of comparing it to say a Christian today, that would be like a hypocrite. They say they're a Christian, but they don't actually live out their religion. So it was interesting. It was kind of like, yeah, yeah go ahead. So, so I actually, I, I think it's fair for a Muslim to say there are hypocrites in Islam, just like there are in Christianity. However, the, the way we determine a hypocrite is a person who professes faith in something but doesn't actually live it out, right? That's, that's what a hypocrite is. And so if you want to talk about what a hypocrite is from an Islamic standpoint, it's somebody who's at variance with the Quran and the Hadith. He's not following what those teach. And so the question, the relevant question is, does the Quran teach, do the Hadith, the traditions teach, that it's legitimate to perpetuate Islam by violence? And the answer is yes. And so ironically, the hypocrite is the one who's not doing that or who condemns that right now. It doesn't mean that your neighbor doesn't really believe that Islam is a peaceful religion. He may, but uh, he's ignorant or he's suppressing what he knows to be the case. He doesn't want to admit it to himself. Uh, I mean, there could be any number of reasons. So it may be the case that he really believes that. It may be the case that he just wants to believe that. Uh, the fact of the matter is, though, the Quran is not a peaceful book. It doesn't promote spreading Islam through means of peaceful persuasion. Uh, it's always been a religion that has promulgated itself through aggression and offensive warfare. I mean, that's just a historical fact, if nothing else. But uh, the other thing that I would say, when, when he says, you know, we, we believe in all the prophets, now just in their minds what this is— they, they think that they're establishing multi, multiple witnesses in favor of Islam. They're also trying to establish the antiquity of Islam, right? You need all these predecessors of Muhammad in order for Islam not just to be this innovation, which is not going to gain much traction, right? If you say, I've got this new religion, this is the God who made the world, and he just showed up now, right? Like, he ha nobody's ever heard of this God. That's not very believable, right? Nobody's going to think, oh, he... Suddenly, uh, this person is talking about him, and uh, he, you know, he's putting in a guest appearance now. Nobody knew he existed before. So they want to establish the antiquity of Islam, which they do by saying, we believe in this long line of prophets back to Adam. They want to establish multiple witnesses to show this has a you know, wide variety of attestation for it. But once they start saying that the, the scriptures have all been corrupted, it, it, it's like they want to—it uh, reminds me of uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein. He was a famous philosopher who—he uh, he wrote a treatise called uh, Tractatus Logico Philosophicus, and in the treatise, he's arguing that ordinary language uh, is bunk, you know, without getting too sophisticated— uh, he's saying it doesn't really communicate. And we need to purify the language. We need to make this entirely new language if we're going to even speak intelligibly. Uh, then at the end of the treatise, though, he says, now, if you've understood me, he says, then you realize that you, you're going to have to throw away the ladder once you've climbed up by it, meaning that if you've understood the words that I've been using to communicate that the words I'm using are bunk, they don't mean anything, they're unintelligible, we need a purified language, you realize that you're... you're you're climbing up a ladder that itself, I've told you this ladder is worthless, right? But I'm expecting you to climb up this ladder and then turn around and say, this ladder isn't able to get me up to, you know, so he's saying you can climb up the ladder and then turn around and say this, you can't climb up by this ladder. This ladder doesn't work. Um, 
and that's essentially what Islam's doing. It's trying to say, hey, look, climb up this ladder. All these prophets point to Muhammad. And then when you turn around, they're going to say, oh, by the way, all those prophets have been corrupted. Right? There's nothing impressive about that. It doesn't establish the antiquity of Islam. All it establishes is that there was a guy in the 7th century who made a claim about all these previous prophets. And there's a guy in the 7th century who made a, a claim about all the, the previous revelations. There's no continuity. There's nothing but a gap there. Islam does not exist until the 7th century. And and by the uh, besides that, I mean, here's one way of putting it. Uh, Islam, it, it, it claims that it's monotheistic. That's its claim to fame. And Christians are charged with being polytheists because they don't understand the Trinity. Well, what I like to tell Muslims in light of this discussion is that Islam is best described as a monoprophetic religion, meaning that they're really just the religion of one man, right? They're just following one man. So if you, if you were to ask a Muslim, what uh, name one prophet that you believe in, whose words you accept besides Muhammad's, ultimately what they're going to have to say is, we believe what Abraham said according to Muhammad, right? We believe what Moses said according to Muhammad, we believe what David said according to Muhammad, right? So it's not really the religion of m multiple prophets. It's the religion of one man telling you. He, you know, all the prophets are really just his sock puppets, right? They are, uh, what do you call those things when people make fake accounts? Um, burner accounts or, uh, you know, <laughs> whatever they're called. Yeah, yeah, Muhammad has a bunch of burner accounts. Um, uh, Muhammad, by the way, if you didn't know, you, you may probably already knew, but Muhammad is the name of the guy, the prophet that they claim uh, was sent last of all. Right. So, so that would kind of be, you know, the, uh, you could say the fuller and final revelation that we would see in Christ as fulfilled in the Old Testament, but Muhammad would be that of their religion, except he would even surpass Jesus in the New Testament, correct? Yeah, which is part of the reason why Jesus has to be demoted, right? Mm -hmm. you, you can't have Jesus being the Christ of Scripture and then Muhammad claiming to be the final prophet. That doesn't really work out well, right? You, yeah. you have Jesus coming and saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? You don't need anything beyond this, Philip. And then Muhammad saying, here I am, finally, I'm here, now you've got the whole kit and caboodle, right? I, that's not going to fly, so Jesus has to be demoted. You can't have Jesus saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. And then Muhammad coming along and saying, you have to confess me alongside of Allah in order to be saved. Uh, so, uh, yeah, Muhammad claims to be the climax of Revelation. And then, you know, besides that, and I'm not necessarily saying this is the sort of stuff you should bring up with your neighbor, maybe at some point that's something you have to decide over the course of time, but... Uh, Muslims believe Muhammad was the, the paragon of virtue. He's the paradigm of conduct. Uh, the Quran says that in Muhammad you have the perfect pattern of conduct. And yet, when you read the sources, the man was so scurrilous and scandalous that it's hard for me to think of another person that, you know, uh, is guilty of greater enormities than Muhammad. And I'm not just talking about the... Uh, the stuff that's happened in his wake, people following his commands, just the stuff that he did in his own lifetime. You know, the guy uh, was in his 50s when he married a six-year-old girl and bedded her at nine before she hit puberty. Uh, he had uh, 
once he became a prophet, he started accumulating wives, and then he put a cap on it for his followers to appear pious. You know, you can only have up to four wives. And then he started desiring additional women, so Allah gave him special perks. I call these the perks of prophethood. Allah granted him special allowance. He could have more than four wives. So he began to accumulate more wives. And uh, one of the wives that he had was the wife of his adopted son. So he had an adopted son, and he, he expressed his desire to his adopted son for his wife. And so the, the son divorced her, and Muhammad married her. And then Allah gave a convenient revelation, because everybody was condemning Muhammad for this. Allah gave a convenient revelation and said, this is okay, because I approve of this. And I could go on giving you a list of this guy's sins, uh, having old women killed uh, because they made fun of him in poetry, uh, just all, all this stuff. Um, but one of the things Muslims will often do is they'll say, hey, look, the Bible records righteous people committing sins. Yeah, but one of the things that the Bible does is it shows God's great displeasure with such people. God is not the cosigner of their actions, right? When David sinned by having an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, there were serious and severe consequences. Anybody that doesn't realize that just needs to go back and read the book of Samuel, right, first and second, and uh, see that uh, you know, the sword never left David's house. Four of his sons died by the, you know, uh, died. Uh, his infant son with Bathsheba, Absalom, I mean, on and on. Uh, there were other things that happened to David as a consequence of that. That's what God said was going to happen. And, you know, the same is true in the case of, of other prophets or righteous people who sin. Uh, God doesn't underwrite what they did. He condemns it and, and chastises the one who perpetrated it. By contrast, Muhammad is not punished, according to the Quran, and Allah even goes out of his way to justify and vindicate Muhammad. So Allah becomes complicit in Muhammad's sins, right? It's not just that he has a sinful prophet. In order to justify Muhammad, Allah himself has to be implicated in, in the sin. And so Allah becomes immoral in the process. Yeah, it sounds like there's some... Uh theology proper doctrine of god stuff that are pretty wacko a little bit <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah so definitely seems like it yeah you're like even you're mentioning earlier as christians like the doctrine of god's foundational and you know to everything uh, we believe you know it's it's the uh the stone by which we build the house right is how we understand the doctrine of god is how we understand the rest of scripture and it's just like it's just incredible how inconsistent and kind of like all over the place the doctrine of god of muhammad and allah are it's just it seems very inconsistent um doesn't really fall too well <laughs> yeah 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 um yeah and, and of course i'm only scratching the surface here mm -hmm. uh like i said the the list is long. The list is long. Doctrinal problems, ethical problems, and, uh, you know, s social things that you could bring up. Uh, but uh, one other thing real quickly, just so it doesn't look like I'm ignoring a, an important thing. There are sects within Islam. You know, so there, there are some sectarian differences. 
But to the extent that certain things that we've talked about are founded upon the primary sources, um, you know, most of that doesn't isn't altered by the fact that there are these different sects. Uh, some of the differences between these sects are a result of other considerations, um, but all of them have to deal with what the Quran says and with what the, what the Hadith say. Uh, now, there are, of course, some who uh, there there is a sect of Islam known as the Ahmadiyya, and they actually are a peaceful sect, uh, and they bend over backwards to try and make the Quran look good. But most Muslims believe that they're not Muslims at all; that they're heretical. So. Uh, you know, their their counterexample isn't really all that relevant. You know, they're they're a, a small fraction of the larger pool of, of of Muslims. Right. Yeah. So I know. Is there any other like big objections they make other than it? I mean, as far as I'm aware, it's the corruption of the of Scripture. It's the Trinity. Um, I mean, what are some other ones that they, they like to come at Christianity and what are some answers to those? Yeah. So another big thing that they like to attack is the doctrine of the atonement. And this, I mean, it's, it's par for the course. If you look at any, even Trinitarian, anti-Trinitarian cult that professes to be Christian, if they deny the doctrine of the Trinity, then it's only a short step or a short time later that they'll eventually reject a biblical doctrine of the atonement. You can't have the same view of the atonement or salvation generally if you have a different view of God. Salvation, I mean, all these things are, are, are you know, systematically related, they're coherent, and you, you can't pull the thread in one area without it, you know, causing other problems, you know, it, it unravels, the whole garment begins to come apart. And, and so, for example, if you were to look at the Socinians in the 17th century, uh, John Owen has this great work called The Vindication of the Doctrine of the Trinity and the Satisfaction of Christ. Now, to our ears, we're looking, we might look at that and think, why is he discussing these two things? Well, because those, the, the, those two things were related to one another in the thinking of the Socinians. They were the progenitors of the contemporary Unitarian movement. The, the Unitarian Universalists are what that became, but then there's this other group today that call themselves Biblical Unitarians who claim to be Biblical. They're, they're not Universalists. Like Anthony Buzzard, Dale Tuggy, those guys? Right, right. Okay. And I've interacted with both those guys as well. I, I did a formal debate with Dale Tuggy. Uh, I've constantly tried to get Anthony Buzzard to do a debate, but uh, he hasn't uh, bit. I did debate his son-in-law, uh, Carlos Xavier, and those debates are available on my site uh, or elsewhere on the internet. But uh, yeah, that so that movement also, they, they deny the Trinity, and they have a defective view of the atonement. It's the same thing if you were to look at Jehovah's Witness literature. They reject the incarnation and, of course, the Trinity. And so they end up with a different conception of what it was that Christ was doing and accomplishing on the cross. And so uh, for Muslims, they don't have a Trinitarian conception of God. So they don't have a Trinitarian view of the work of salvation. As Christians, we recognize that uh, salvation is a work of the triune God. Right, chosen by the Father, purchased by the Son, sealed by the Spirit, blessed God, three in one. This is a 
uh, a work of the triune God. All three persons are active in our salvation. Uh, and Christ's death in particular was the death of the God-man, right? The, the one person, by virtue of the, you know, having two natures and, and uniting them in his one person, uh, Jesus' death was sufficient to atone for the sins of all his people and, and placate the wrath of God and secure for us eternal life, procure the work of the Holy Spirit who applies the benefits of Christ to us. And once you take away the deity of Christ, it just becomes the death of an ordinary man. Uh, and then there are any number of ways they, they might conceive of that sort of thing, right? The Unitarian will usually just think of it as sort of a, uh, you know, some of them will say it was just, he was setting us a good example, right? Or others will say that uh, Jesus was just showing us how much God loves us, right? Not really placating God's wrath that was due to us for offending his justice or righteousness or whatever, uh, it's just a display of God's love. Others would say that it, it's uh, God is doing this to bring about, uh, you know, our moral uh, transformation in the sense that uh, Christ's death is a display of God's righteousness in the sense that uh, not that Jesus is atoning for sin, uh, but that Jesus is uh basically uh undergoing a death to show us how bad sin is or something like that uh so it has sort of this moral government influence there's other versions of that i mean i'm not trying to give a whole theology or wacky theology of the atonement but uh i, I say all of that just to say that trinitarianism and the denial of or anti-trinitarianism and a denial of what christ accomplished go hand in hand so Muslims will object, and they trot out all of the typical objections that you might get from a Pelagian, right? They'll, they'll reject the doctrine of original sin. They'll reject the concept of federal headship, that one person can represent another. Uh, they reject the notion that Adam's corruption could spread to his descendants. So not just that his guilt can be imputed, but that his corruption uh, of nature uh, spreads to all of his biological uh, uh, descendants. Uh, and, and then since they reject federal headship, they would also reject the idea that Christ's death could be on our behalf. There, there's, there can't be any true substitution of that person as representative and head of others uh, in our place. And they'll, they'll argue that this is fundamentally unjust, uh, all these sorts of things. And w one of the things that the Quran says that they think justifies this is it, it makes the statement over and over again no bearer of burdens can bear the sins of another right so uh, they're saying that's just impossible one person can't die for other people now in the first place that's irrelevant right to us uh, the quran's not the word of god uh, using that as a criteria to evaluate christianity is illicit it it you know it, you're the johnny come lately right you have to demonstrate that this revelation is from god and given that it's discontinuous with what, I mean, all, you, all you're doing is proving further that this revelation, alleged, alleged revelation, is discontinuous with what came before, and which, for which reason we should reject it. Um, but even if we just take the Quran for what it claims to be and, and ask what that verse is saying, it says, uh, no bearer of burdens can bear the sins of another. 
It doesn't say no one can bear the sins of another, no bearer of burden. So nobody who has his own guilt to bear, nobody who has to answer to God for his own sins can bear somebody else's sins. We grant that. That's why nobody else could do it. That's why it had to be Christ. And Christ is not a bearer of burdens. He doesn't have his own weight of sin. Uh, he wasn't guilty before God. He was righteous, just, holy, harmless, undefiled, and so forth. And interestingly, even the Quran agrees with this. The Quran says that Jesus was holy, uh, that Jesus never sinned. The Hadith bear this out as well. And so even by the Quran's own criteria, Jesus is uh, a legitimate uh, candidate to atone for the sins of others. Uh, and most Muslims aren't aware of it, but in the Hadith, uh, it, it says that when people stand before Allah, you know, Allah is going to have these scales and he's going to judge people based on whose scale is heavier in the good department than in the evil department. And those Muslims who didn't have sufficient good works on, on one side of the scale, uh, it says that Allah is going to take their sins and put them on Jews and Christians, and Jews and Christians are going to go to hell for them. And so here you have a concept of substitution and imputation, right? Their sins are being imputed to us, and we're bearing them according to the Islamic sources. But now notice the fundamental injustice of this. You know, they, they pretend like it's unjust in the case of Christ, as if Christ was this, you know, some, some guy walking around and God grabbed him and said, hey, you, I want you to be a sacrifice. You know, the, when really it's Christ is the eternal son of the Father who willingly uh, under, w took the role of a mediator, took on himself our nature, came into the world to save us and so forth. Uh, you know, Jesus said in Matthew 10, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he gives us this purpose clause. This is why he came. This was his purpose. So Jesus was a willing sacrifice, and he was a perfect sacrifice. Whereas in Islam, you have these people who are unwilling victims, who are having the sins of other people imposed on them, and they themselves are sinful and not pure uh, sacrifices. Uh, so as much as Muslims want to object and say that the Christian system is unjust, it appears all the more just in comparison to the Islamic approach to these things. So that's kind of an insight into how they, they think. And that shows you that not only that they reject the Christian view, but also gives you some indication of what their position is. It is a uh, position of self-salvation. Uh, they do talk about Allah forgiving people and that sort of thing, but all of that is contingent and Allah is portrayed in the Quran as arbitrary and fickle, and so you can't really rely on even these conditional promises. You know, it's always the case that Allah could change his mind. Uh, you're always left. I, one of the Muslims I talked to recently at a mosque, you know, I said to him, I said, and this is just a, you know, it's a common evangelistic in, you know, when you're talking to somebody, I, I asked him, I said, uh, uh, do you know if you're going to uh, be with God when you die, if you're going to go to heaven? and uh, Or, to put it differently, do you know that your sins are forgiven? And the guy said, uh, well, I hope so. And I said, well, that's, see, that's one of the big differences between Islam and Christianity. Uh, Islam doesn't give you a firm foundation for believing that your sins are forgiven and that you're at peace with God and are standing righteous before him, and upon death they're going to 
be received into his presence. And uh, he says, uh, you know, uh, you know, Allah, Allah forgives people. And I said, yeah, I said, so are your sins forgiven? He goes, well, he says, you have to repent. Uh, you know, Allah promises to forgive if you repent. And I say, okay, uh, have you repented? And he said, yes. And I said, so are your sins forgiven? And he said, well, I hope so. And I said, well, wait a minute. You said that you, you know, your answer to me saying that you don't have assurance was, well, if, if you repent, Allah promises to forgive. Now you've told me you repented and, but you can't tell me Allah forgave you. And then he says, well, our repentance has to be sincere. And I said, so you're, you're telling me that, you know, you're a hypocrite or what? And he goes, well, uh, I don't know if it's sincere because, you know, only Allah knows if it's sincere. And, and what's really going on here, and, and I'm not going to go through the whole conversation, what's really going on here is there's this disconnect. See, as, as Christians, we agree that you repent and God forgives. But what uh, what grants efficacy to this is the death of Christ. It's Christ's death that gives us the confidence before God that we'll, we're forgiven. It's not based on the perfection of our repentance or anything of that sort. Repentance itself was purchased by Christ on the cross. Repentance is a gift of Christ's spirit applied to his people, and so it's a benefit of salvation, and it's a, a, a fruit of the Spirit's work in us, and, and we do say that repentance is a mark of a believer, but it's, that's not the basis of our confidence before God. It's Christ and his righteousness alone, and so it's precisely because that's missing that this person at no point could ever say he knows his sins are forgiven, and so what I'm trying to do is help him to see the disconnect. You know, there's a huge missing element here in his system. He could never be assured that his sins are forgiven. Uh, he doesn't have anything like Romans 8, where Paul says, you know, who shall lay any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies, who's he that condemns? It was Christ Jesus who died, more than that, was raised to life, uh, you know, and, and who's at the right hand of God interceding for us. And then Paul goes on to say, you know, uh, if he's given up his own son for us, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things, right? If he gave up his own son, and there's nothing more valuable than that, then it follows. I mean, Paul's logic is impeccable here. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? And then Paul goes on to say, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor you know, principalities or power nor things present or things to come, you know, nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why Christians have assurance. That sort of thing is entirely missing in Islam. And so uh, one of the, this actually brings me back to, to something you asked earlier, just throw in here real quick. You asked me about my interest in Islam. One of the things that hit me early on was there was a Muslim that I was uh, interacting with, and he had this little blurb describing why he engages in dawah, which is their word for uh, Islamic evangelism or apologetics. And he says, I'm doing this in the hopes that Allah will love me. And I, you know, that was just one little line. And I just remember thinking how incredibly sad <laughs> How incredibly sad. This guy is running on the rat wheel or whatever, uh, running on the treadmill, all in an effort to know that his God loves him. In other words, he doesn't know that. And 
whenever you're in that sort of situation, there's there, there's never an end of the next thing you've got to do, right? Anything can throw you into confusion and doubt. And uh, I mean, it's sort of like the difference between <clears throat> a child who grows up in a family where he knows that his father and mother love him. And then he goes out into the world having, you know, that as sort of the atmosphere of his of his upbringing and the air that he breathes that person has a whole different mindset <clears throat> unless of course you know if they were raised in a different context god can transform them but i'm just saying that generally speaking if that's the context in uh, oh excuse me uh well, i should have said the, the other side of that is a, a child who grows up in a family where he doesn't have his parents approval and he's always fighting for it. when that person goes out into the world he he, he has a, a negative uh outlook on things and god can transform that right but um you know it's a very different mindset the, the child who seeks to love and honor his parents because they loved him and a child who's trying to do a bunch of stuff because he's never had that sense that his parents loved him and that's a you know a very difficult situation for someone to be in and that's the position of muslims before their deity and so that just hit me to, you know, uh, the core. And I thought, uh, you know, as, as much as I am opposed to Islam, uh, I recognize Muslims as image bearers and desperately in need of the saving grace of Christ. And so, uh, you know, as best I'm able, I want to reach those that God has, you know, uh, determined to call. And, and so uh, that's why I do that now. Amen, man. That's great. And it, it, it's, I just, I guess I never really realized how Pelagian kind of everything is. I, I mean, it, it just kind of bounces right off Mormonism, Jehovah Witness. It bounces on Roman Catholicism. I mean, there's this system of you got to do these things and get this this way. And then, you know what I mean? It, it's like mass. Like, well, I mean, I got to go to mass. I mean, I can't really know unless, you know, I keep... It's like, man, you know, um, if it was up to me, you know, it would have been over a long time ago. I, I don't even think I'd ever be anywhere without the grace of God, um, you know. Yeah, I, I always tell people, I don't know how you guys put your head on the pillow at night. I mean, yeah. I really don't. Um, yeah. Now, I know prior to reading the Bible and coming to a conviction of my sins, I didn't have any thought about these things. So in that state, I can see, you know, people put their head on the pillow. It's like, you know, no thought of God. Psalm 14, you know, says, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I mean, person who has no notion of God that he's entertaining is true. There's no fear of God before his eyes. But once a person comes to a point where that does become a factor in their thinking, and they, they do recognize that that God exists and they're answerable to him and they haven't lived up to his standards. Once you're in that arena and you don't have Christ, it seems to me like you'd be in this perpetual state of fear. At least I would. Uh, and I'm not a person given, you know, to worry and fear or anything like that. That's just not my natural disposition. But, uh, you know, once you become aware of those things, it's, you know, to me, it's like, I often, you know, when I'm talking to people, I'm thinking, 
how could you how can you go to sleep without knowing that you're right with God? You know, how can you go to sleep knowing that you might not wake up? You know, how can you step outside your door not concerned that you might get plowed by a semi truck? You know, uh, how how can you even move? I'd be petrified. And and sometimes what I'm doing is I'm just trying to get them to see the the uh, weight of this and the uh, immediacy of of coming to terms with some of this, but uh, it is a, a a real factor. I mean, I uh, I really don't see how people can be at peace given you know th those solutions to to the problem. They're they're not dealing honestly with themselves, and that's actually you know when I was in prison. One of the things that really got me was I was fishing for, you know, I was reading the Bible and I'm hearing about God's righteousness and his wrath. I didn't understand the gospel from the Bible, but I understood God's righteousness and his wrath. And I knew myself in the face of this to be a sinner and deserving of God's displeasure. And I was sort of fishing for an excuse. And I would listen to other people as they were talking about why they are where they are and so forth. And I'd hear one person give this excuse, another person give that excuse. And I'd try and latch on to one or another, but then quickly realize that it was just wind and vanity. But like one person would say, you know, I, I grew up in a uh, broken home. And then I'd think, oh, yeah. And then I go, no, I didn't grow up in a broken home. So that doesn't account for why I'm such a scoundrel. And then I heard somebody else say, you know, we grew up poor. And then I thought, well, we didn't grow up poor. I wasn't rich, but we never lacked for food, clothing, shelter, and, and other even things beyond that. Uh, and then I heard somebody say, you know, I, I grew up in a uh, a bad environment. Now, eventually, my area became a bad environment, but it wasn't like that initially. And I knew plenty of people that came from those same contexts that didn't go the way I went. And so even that struck me as a straw, like nothing I could stand on. So I just kept hearing these different excuses and I just kept thinking, these are all fig leaves, right? These are all vain efforts at covering our shame and sinfulness before God. And I don't think that's going to fly when I stand before him. And, you know, people that are seeking out these other religious options like Islam or Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, they, they've got these, these band-aids, you know, they've, they've got these things that are, you know, just temporarily pacifying their conscience, but, uh, you know, really look at them and I don't know how they could give anybody any confidence and they don't. That's, and that was the whole point, right? Uh, I've never met a anti-Trinitarian, or even a professing Trinitarian that doesn't believe in the biblical gospel of Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection, and of free justification through him alone, who uh, has assurance before God right now. I mean, it's, it's, it doesn't mean that people who believe that necessarily know the assurance that I'm talking about, like there could be a person who believes in Christ and are they're trusting in him alone and have not yet arrived at an understanding of why that gives them assurance or should give them assurance. So there are, there are Christians who believe the truth that still struggle with assurance, but it's not because in principle, it doesn't, it's not there. 
right? The assurance is available to Christians, you know, but often if there is a Christian who lacks assurance, it's because of, you know, uh, looking in the wrong direction or, you know, for assurance or what have you there, you know, in, in part, usually what's going on is they're thinking more at that point, like Muslims or, or Mormons or Jehovah's witnesses than they are like Christians. Right. Calvin once said that Christ is the mirror of our election. So people would ask, how do we know that we're elect? And, and Calvin would prudently say, you can't know God's decree. Like you can't peer open heaven and get a look at God's decree. What we know is that scripture says that uh, those who believe in Christ are saved and those whom God elects are those who will believe it's to them that God gives the gifts of faith and repentance. And so uh, Christ is the mirror of our election in the sense that if we're looking to Christ, we know by virtue of that, that we were elect, right? Not, not because our act of faith makes us elect. The point is that faith is the fruit of election. And so uh, the fruit itself becomes the indication of the root, right? election is the root of which faith is the fruit. So if a person's looking to Christ, then they know by virtue of that, that uh, they have eternal life. But if, if you're instead over here looking to see, you know, what, what's in the Lamb's book of life, I'm trying to get a direct look at it somehow. You know, how can I know? I, you know, you're looking for a special revelation from God, you know, some kind of thunderbolt coming down and just the right design, or, I mean, I don't know, you know, the sorts of things that, that people are thinking of, but they want some kind of sign, some indicator, some proof. The, the, the proof is Christ. Look to Christ, and, and, you know, that's how you know you have eternal life. Yeah, that's so helpful because, you know, I know maybe it's just with new believers, um, but I've, yeah, I went through when I first became a Christian, I struggled so much with assurance for a long time. Um, and then lots of other people I've recently met, recent converts and stuff, they struggle with assurance all the time. And um, I, I think, you know, after being regenerated by the Holy Ghost, it takes time for us to grow in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus and understand what exactly is redemption has actually bought us um, and our union with him, our vindication with him. Um, and when you grow in those things, you bask in those things that helps, you know, um, and I, I, love, I love how the, uh, the confession uh, puts it to the Shorter Catechism Amendment when it talks about how even in our sin, there's a sense in which everything we do is still tainted with sin. So I think a lot of times with assurance, people are, th think their actions have to be pure and perfect or they're not legit legitimate, you know, or, oh, I, you know, I helped my dad today, but I, you know, part of me kind of wanted my dad to say, Hey, good job, son, or something. So I, oh, I didn't do it in phase. So, you know, and it's like a very all or nothing approach. Right. And it's just sad to see uh, Christians go through that. You know, um, I remember. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Real quick back on the, you're quoting Romans eight. Uh, I remember one Pelagian uh, commentary I read on Romans eight after it gives a whole, you know, neither life nor death nor prince. No, nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God. And he's like, well, I mean, but like you can step outside that you can, you, you can be that one exception, you know, uh, the qualification, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it goes against the whole thrust of what Paul is saying there, right? right? The, the whole point that Paul is making is precisely that there isn't anything. 
But what I use, like to say in response to that is simply to point people to Jeremiah 32, verse 40, where God says that part and parcel of the benefits of this new covenant that he's establishing is, he says, I will put my fear into their hearts so that they will never depart from me. And so even if it were the case that all that's being said in these other passages is that there's nothing outside of you uh, besides you that can separate you from God. Well, this passage over here in Jeremiah takes care of that one remaining potential, uh, you know, enemy yeah. of your salvation yourself, right? Yeah. God's going to put his fear into your heart so you never depart from him. But yeah, I mean, it really just destroys the logic of those passages. It reminds me of, um, I'm, I'm actually supposed to debate a, one, uh, excuse me, an open uh, theist uh, coming up in a few months. What's his name? uh warren mcgrew oh my okay <laughs> oh, it's yeah. gonna be it's gonna be I, big fun yeah yeah uh, we're gonna have big fun uh but uh <laughs> um you know i i've made it clear already to him that uh uh he's an idolater and and so anyways but uh so one of the things that open theists will do is they'll any passage that you show them that talks about God having knowledge of the future. They have a number of ways that they try to get around, you know, different things. They create all kinds of different uh, categories for knowledge, like present knowledge, limited, like they have all the, yeah. Just yeah, like yeah. Molinism and all their amazing yeah. things they come up with. Yeah. Well, one of the, one of the things they'll say is, you know, God, God knows what he plans to do. So he can reveal those sorts of things. What he can't know are the free future free will choices of individuals right? That's prohibited. If he foreknew them, then they would be certain in advance. And that's the one thing we can't allow, right? There can't be anything fixed about the future. Uh, that sounds too Calvinistic in their mind, even though it's even believed by Arminians, right? I mean, Arminians believe God has absolute foreknowledge. But uh, one of the things they'll do when you show them passages about God uh, predicting the future. So, so for example, if you look at the Isaiah uh, section, uh, the classic section brought up in this connection 41 through 48 where god is challenging the false gods saying that they're false gods that the people of israel are whoring after them and so god throws down the gauntlet and says demonstrate that you're gods do something whether good or evil tell us the future you know god is laying it on thick and saying show us the goods right give us your credentials and he tells Israel, you know, I've, I've told you these things repeatedly in the past. Everything I've said has come true. I'm announcing new things to you now. Uh, let your God stand up and, and vindicate their names by declaring the future to us. And then, you know, you go through these passages where one thing after another is being predicted. And, and God is saying this is his, this is a mark of deity. He knows. The, and what open theists will say is, well, it doesn't say he knows everything about the future. Right. So it, it's it's the same sort of game, right? Where it's like, uh, you know, here, here's Paul. You'd think he's being pretty exhaustive here and, and that the thrust of it is, no, your salvation is secure. If you're an elect person, you're in Christ, Christ died for you. Uh, you can't be lost. Uh, you know, but there because Paul doesn't say, you know, one thing. Uh, you know, suddenly it's like, okay, the, then his point wasn't that nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Uh, so, I, I mean, it's almost as if for the open theist, God needs to give you an exhaustive account of everything that's going to happen before you can conclude that he has exhaustive foreknowledge. But then 
that, you know, uh, that's more than a little bit problematic. I won't give you all my thoughts on that right now because uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. M- maybe the idol killer will be watching. But, <laughs> that's uh, right. Well, I, I don't know if he has that yet, much. Yeah. I don't know if he has that much foresight. You know, he might be like his God and, and not. Uh, yeah. Well, be... some of them guys are very aware of everything that's going on surrounding their names. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, that's know, true. I, like I was thinking of like late flowers. If even if some guy with 10 views on his YouTube channel says something about it, I'll have a four hour response to it, you know, so <laughs> you never know. He helps uh, other people get popular. So maybe I'll bank off of that or something. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, that's that's another thing that interests me, though. I mean, I. um I've, I've always said with respect to Arminianism that, you know, I make a distinction between people who are Arminian, but either ignorant of Calvinism or are yet unpersuaded. Uh, but there are also different versions of Arminianism. There are other things besides Arminianism. You know, there's, uh, there, there's different stuff outside of Calvinism besides Arminianism, but, um, or, you know, provisionism or whatever. Um, but I always, I I do have, you know, I do make a distinction between that sort of thing and people who are hostile towards the God of scripture. When I hear people say certain things that indicate an evident hostility and antipathy, that to me is more problematic, right? It's one thing to just be Arminian because you think that's what scripture teaches. You haven't heard a full case for Calvinism or you've heard it, but have yet not, really been able to, you know, make a conclusion or, you know, you're, you're in limbo, whatever that may be. There's a difference between that and an, uh, an evident hostility. That's always more alarming to me, but what's even further disturbing to me is when I see how quickly and easily these people are willing to be bedfellows with those who are pronounced opponents of historic Christianity. Open theists are, you know, they're not just wrong on God's foreknowledge, right? In order to prop up their tottering position, they have to adopt a whole host of errors, right? Open theists, uh, by and large, will they'll reject the idea that God is eternal in the sense of existing above time or outside of time, is the creator and governor of time. They, in many cases, reject that God is omnipresent and view him as some kind of an embodied being. Some of them will say that because you, you have to grant that God can change, he's, he's learning, that's a form of change, and there are other things that go with that. Some of them will say it's even possible for God to lie uh, or break his promises. Um, I mean, I could go on and on down the list. And uh, so the reason I bring that up is only to say because uh, it, it's curious to me when I see some of these guys, they will do shows with open theists like you know, yeah, we disagree on this, but, you know, the, the one thing we agree on is we hate that Calvinism business, yeah. right? And I'm thinking, my goodness, it's it's like, it reminds me of uh, the Romans and the Jews and the Herodians and so forth, all banding together to uh, crucify Christ. They were otherwise hostile parties, right? They were at odds with one another, but they were united when it came to their opposition to Christ. And so when I see, and then uh, as another example, I mean, I've seen um, Dale Tuggy on some of these people's channel uh, because he promotes open theism. Dale Tuggy's a implacable enemy of Trinitarianism. 
I've seen, uh, I mean, I've just seen this cross pollination and I'm thinking, you know, you guys are sort of giving up the store here. You're showing where your true sympathies lie. So I don't know. I threw that in there for whatever it's worth. Um, yeah. As a good uh, presuppositionalist, uh, our ultimate starting point is the word of God, right? And we allow that to shape and mold our philosophy of evidence, our understanding of everything, you know? Um, when you're coming to the text with these predisposed philosophical grids or whatever you want to call them, and you're saying, well, this can't be the case, like God can't do this, and then you read that in everything, I mean, this is what you get, you know? Um, and it, yeah, it's just a sad reality because this stuff, it seems like, you know, especially YouTube and all this stuff nowadays, you know, this stuff that gets out there to so many more lay people and they just, they don't know no better. They're just like, oh, this makes sense. Oh, I guess I was wrong my whole life. And what my parents taught me was garbage, you know? <laughs> and, and it, it is a very interesting point though, because like, you know, the people like Dale Tuggy and all that, they want to pick and choose their, their favorite history parts or their favorite, you know, academic scholars to support their views. But um, if they had admittedly, you know, vouch for all their other things they're saying the people would be like no 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 you're off you know but they like to pick and grab certain parts that they like you know um yeah yeah in fact uh it's interesting open theists will often claim that uh it, well they'll claim that the traditional christian view of god is a product of early Christians imbibing Greek philosophy. So they'll say that it's Platonic yeah. or Neoplatonic or what have you. And that's how they try and, you know, just get rid of the church fathers uh, or medieval theologians or the reformers. You know, all of them are just infected with this philosophical background. And yet much of their argumentation is just pure philosophy. They're, they're bringing clear philosophical notions to their interpretation of scripture and will often say you know god can't know the future because if he knew the future then that would destroy libertarian free will and we need libertarian free will because otherwise we can't be responsible all of this is just generated by philosophical speculation it's not grounded on scripture now of course they'll want to turn to scripture to give some color or two or uh, give a, an apparent veneer of being biblical to their their philosophical system, but it really is philosophical. Uh, but the the thing that's interesting is that the vast majority of those who have spearheaded and championed open theism, because it's a it's a modern phenomena, uh, have have been philosophers, not biblical theologians or exegetes and what have you, uh, but but philosophers, and. Uh, what makes it even more ironic, so first of all, they say, you know, the Christian view is just derived from philosophy. Here it is, all these guys are end up being philosophers trying to play theologian. Uh, but then what's ironic is it, uh, in terms of the contemporary philosophical scene, the vast majority of philosophers are determinists, not indeterminists. They believe that man is not free. Now, that doesn't mean they're reformed or Calvinistic. They don't have a view of freedom, I mean, of, of determinism that's uh looks that views god as the one who's decreed and governing all things uh but they they do see the notion of man having libertarian freedom to be problematic so i mean they're, they're just a bundle of inconsistencies but in any case uh yeah not not overly concerned to thoroughly ground their positions in scripture 
Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's funny when you, when I was asking who, who the open TS was, I was kind of like, is it that idol killer guy? And you're like, yeah. So that's, that's funny. Um, that was the one person that came to mind because I know he's been getting kind of popular. Everybody loves him. So, yeah, I mean, I, I've, so I don't really comment much in certain places, but I'll see people commenting and I've seen his name actually quite a bit, but never really paid attention to him. He was just um, like, I'd see his name and I, I never, I mean, I would notice that this guy makes these crazy comments. I didn't necessarily know that he was an open theist. I just, I, I assumed that he was a provisionist or an Arminian or something like that. And it, what happened was I decided to do a show on my channel on open theism because of a, a few things that had happened recently. And somebody came in the channel and they're saying to me, you know, you need to debate so-and-so or such and such. And I think one of them went and, and told him and so he popped on. I'm not really sure how he noticed my channel, but it was a live show and he came on there and I was only too willing to, to engage him in a debate. And then I realized the idol killer is Warren McGrew. It, it didn't matter to me in advance who it was. It could have been Clark Pinnock, you know, John Sanders, Richard Rice, uh, Gregory Boyd, any one of those guys, I would, I would debate any one of them. So all I know is this name says idol killer and, uh, and then it and then it all kind of came together. I thought, no wonder I thought this guy's comments were odd every time I saw them in these different places. You know, but I, I never knew about his channel. I never knew about his website. Now I know about it and I know about all these little connections between him and these other open theists. Um, but uh, yeah, initially it was just seeing his comments on some social media pages. And I just remember thinking, you know, just one more person out there that's, uh, you know, hostile to historic Christianity. Uh, but well, I mean, it, like I said, the way, the way I thought of it at the time was more like, he's just a, uh, a zealous Arminian, but now it's only too apparent. He's not even that, you know, so. Yeah, man. <laughs> well, good luck with that. I'm sure you'll do fine. <laughs> Let's stick to the Bible. Right. Uh, you should be okay yeah oh yeah 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 man well we've been doing we've been going let's see hour and 40 um so we'll probably probably close it up here shortly um you know got got to work tomorrow do you do you uh yeah. do you do you do uh what do you do just that so I, I do a bunch of stuff um actually tomorrow is different but i uh i actually work for a particular christian ministry i won't mention the name yeah, yeah, on yeah. air i could tell you but uh i field theological questions for them that come into the ministry that's something i i was doing ever since i was in seminary and getting out of seminary i could, i just continued to do that because it's something i can do remotely from my computer or wherever i'm at uh, i also am a pastor so i minister to people in prisons. Uh, however, a lot of that work is now, you know, stuff that I'm doing at home or behind the scenes because the prisons are shut down. I can't go in because yeah. of COVID. Uh, so I take a lot of phone calls, do a bunch of other work related to that, but at home again. Uh, I fill in as a, a preacher at different churches that are currently between pastors. So uh, I've been 
serving at a church for the past several months, preaching for them every Sunday. But this weekend, I'm actually going out of town. I'm going to be speaking up in Mechanicsville, Virginia, at a conference at an OPC church for Jeff Downs, this is the pastor there. Okay, is that um, Knox? Knox, yeah, Knox Presbyterian, yeah. Okay, yeah, is uh, Eli Yale going to that with you? Is yep. he the one? He, okay, yeah. I saw Eli's going to be there and Rob Bowman. So, yep. yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Nice. nice. Um, I, I'd be the only way I'd be happier is if I wasn't speaking and I was just listening to to them. But uh, yeah, right. I got to speak, so I don't. You know. Yeah, and you went to Greenville uh, Theological Seminary. Is that or is that what yeah yeah Greenville uh, Presbyterian uh, Theological yeah. Seminary? So uh, that's in Greenville, South Carolina. A great seminary. Uh, Dr. Joey Piper was yep. the president during my time there. He's since uh, stepped down. He's still serving as a professor of systematic theology, uh, but Dr. Jonathan McMasters is now the president. But there's a number of other people in addition to them, just fabulous professors. Uh, Dr. Michael Morales is an excellent Old Testament scholar. Uh, his stuff is off the charts his books um did he just write that uh uh part of benjamin glad's new series on biblical theology did he write one of the was it exodus old and new yeah you know that series i'm talking about uh, yeah 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 he wrote that okay michael okay yeah i still yeah. have yet to get that one and get i just got the brandon crow covenant law and uh and ben glad's we have ben glad on the show too um and he has the one uh, on the people of God. So yeah, me and my wife been uh, doing some biblical theology stuff together and uh, it's a lot yeah. of fun, man. Dr. Morales's stuff is, is excellent. So prior to that, he had written a number of books. The one that's perhaps best known is his book, who shall ascend. And it's a biblical theological look at Leviticus. And you'd think uh, a book on Leviticus, maybe not so exciting, but man, I've got to tell you, in the past, I don't know, 10 years, it's probably the best book I've read in, in the past 10 years. Uh, and I, I mean, I read a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm actually I, reading through Leviticus right now. That's funny you said that. So now I know. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's, it's excellent. I mean, and, and it starts, it, it, it makes sense that the book is, is more profound than, you might have thought, I mean, one of the points that he makes is that it's central to the Torah. And it's pretty impressive how he shows that. It's not just in the obvious sense that it's the middle book, right? Genesis mm -hmm. and Exodus and then Numbers and Deuteronomy. But just, I'd have to leave it to checking out the book for you to see fully what I'm talking about. But yeah, it's, it's a brilliant book. Uh, was it uh, Vern Poitras? The Shadow of Christ and the Law of Moses. I know he kind of does some similar things in the first five books. Yeah, well, this this goes, I mean, that's great. Uh, Poitras yeah. is great. That book is great. Uh, this is sort of a different animal in some ways, uh, what Dr. Morales is doing. Yeah. Uh, but I'll give you an example just really quickly of, of something that, that it, this resulted in in my own thinking. So for most of my Christian life, I thought of the Gospels as there was something curious about there being four Gospels. I didn't 
question God's wisdom in giving us four Gospels. I, I know his wisdom is higher than mine, and uh, if I don't understand why there are four, then it's just because I'm ignorant and, and you know, uh, need to put my hand on my mouth. But it was still the fact that when I would think of the Gospels, John stood out to me head and shoulders above them, and then Matthew, then Luke, and then Mark kind of, you know, I'm thinking, you know, I, I'm not really sure I get Mark because, you know, 600 of Mark's 666 verses are found in Matthew, right? So Mark only has 66 additional verses. And then Matthew, though, has many more besides that. He, you know, 600 of what you find in, in Mark are in Matthew, and then Matthew's longer than Mark. So there's more detail there. So if you read Matthew, you essentially got Mark and more. And it's similar with Luke. Luke has about 500 verses in common with Mark. And you get additional details in Luke, some that you don't even get in Matthew. So I understand why we have Matthew and Luke. Uh, and then John's, of course, has its own distinctive character to it. There's uh, additional material that John has chosen to highlight that the synoptic writers didn't. And so all those made sense to me, and I just didn't get Mark. But I, I, I started more and more to understand it, uh, and, and it kind of makes me think it's sort of like this, the way I think of it now. A lot of Christians, when they, when they become Christians, they think the, the book that they should most uh, naturally press into and, and figure out is the book of revelation, right? Everybody yeah. thinks that's, that's where they're supposed to start. And really, I, I think uh, a sounder approach is that the book of revelation is probably the one you want to tackle later because it presupposes a knowledge of so much more. You know, it, it's interesting. The book of revelation, I, I think it only has like, uh, it has like one composite citation of the old Testament, <laughs> Right. Uh, but it's the most in, in terms of allusions, there's no book of the New Testament that alludes to the old more than uh, the book of Revelation. Uh, you know, people like G.K. Beale and others point that out. So in one sense, it's more steeped in the Old Testament than would it be initially apparent if you're just looking at quotations, because it's not directly quoting it. It's alluding back to it. And so it assumes an understanding of those things. That's how you're going to understand the figures and the, the imagery and all this sort of thing. You know, when you read of a woman who's uh, uh, clothed uh, with, uh, you know, ha or has a crown of 12 stars on her head, right? Um, uh, the moon's under her feet and she's clothed with the sun. Um, and you ask, you know, who is this woman? Well, you've already got an Old Testament uh, uh account where the sun, the moon, and 12 stars represent something, right? In Joseph's dream, it represents Israel. Well, this woman in Revelation gives birth to a child. That child, it says, is caught up to God into his throne. It's obviously a picture of the Messiah coming from Israel and, and all that. I mean, but you're not going to know that. Just looking at the book of Revelation just sounds like there's this fantastically large woman who's so large that, you know, she's got a crown of 12 stars on her head. You know, or, or you're going to plug into it every weird thing that comes to mind. Well, I actually think that Mark's gospel is, uh, well, it's more profound than I ever thought, but it, it, it's, it's communicating things in a way that uh, 
it's not as much on the surface as it is in the other Gospels. Uh, and so it's, it's the sort of book that requires diligent, painstaking labor, and it's not going to, you know, there's not going to be a payoff to somebody who's approaching it uh, with anything less than, uh, you know, just an utter commitment to understand it. And, and that's kind of how I always approached it was just sort of like, okay, I'm the dummy here and I'll just keep reading this because God put it here, even though I think I've got all this in the other books. But what I, what I started to realize, putting things together from what I heard from Dr. Morales, and I mean, these are my insights, but they're applications of things I learned from, from Dr. Morales. But he, Dr. Morales would talk about this Exodus motif, and he talks about it in his Leviticus book. He talks about it in Exodus Old and New, but he talks about how uh, the original Exodus was paradigmatic of the true redemption that God was going to accomplish in the future. It provided the, the, the contours and the categories and the terminology that the prophets would later use to speak of that future redemption. And so you have this anticipation in the prophets of a, a greater redemption, something that's going to eclipse the previous redemption and altogether you know, cause it to be forgotten. In other words, it's not going to be the great foundational event to which his people, God's people, look back. Something else is going to supplant it, I mean, in the sense of, you know, just overshadow it. Um, and so you have this thing in the prophets where they're talking about this new exodus, this new exodus, and... It's, it's not called New Exodus, but it's all this Exodus imagery. So at the beginning of Isaiah 40, for example, it says, A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Wilderness, right? That's hearkening back to numbers and other stuff where God took them out into the wilderness. And then as you're reading through Isaiah 40 through 55, you've got all this other stuff that's Exodus imagery. God says, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. Don't be afraid. I am. All this kind of stuff. Anyways, long story short. If you look at Mark's gospel, in fact, just like all the gospels, he quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3. All the gospels quote that, but Mark puts it at the beginning and, in effect, is saying this is the trajectory of the book. This is the fulfillment of this new Exodus hope of the prophets. And so when you start reading Mark's gospel now with this in mind, now now just think about a, a handful of things. In, in Mark 4, Jesus delivers his disciples from the sea. Remember, the, the disciples are on a boat, and the, it's storm-tossed and so forth. Jesus delivers the disciples from the sea. Well, following that, in chapter 5, Jesus delivers the Gerasene demoniac from a legion of demons, causing them to be drowned in the sea. Now, a legion, that's a military term. It's a, it's a term referring to an army, right, of, of a contingent of, of, of troops. So you have deliverance, sea deliverance of his people, followed by destruction of a, a foreign or hostile army, right? When God delivered Israel out of Egypt, he then drowned Pharaoh and his legions in the sea, right? Well, then following that in Mark 6, Jesus feeds a multitude of Israelites in the wilderness. So you have sea deliverance, destruction of Satan's legions, followed by miraculously feeding a multitude of Israelites in the wilderness. All of this is Exodus stuff, right? And and we're used to thinking of, you know, some of these elements as hearkening back to the Old Testament, but once you start seeing it in this connection now, he's he's literally recapitulating the history of Israel, and so showing that he is the Lord of the Exodus. He's the one who delivered them of old, 
and now is coming to accomplish a new exodus. And, uh, and then Jesus does it again, by the way. At the end of Mark 6, Jesus once again delivers the disciples from the sea. They're again out on the lake, and Jesus comes walking to them. And, and what does Jesus say? He comes walking to them on the water, and the disciples think they see a ghost. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. And in Greek, he says literally, I am, right, take courage. And that's exactly what it says in Isaiah 43, that God will, God will say, don't be afraid. He'll say, I am, and he'll be with them when they're in the waters. And, and then, by the way, in that context in Mark 6, there's this line that sometimes perplexes people. It says, uh, you know, they're on the sea, they're being tossed around, and Jesus is walking on the sea. And then it says he intended to pass by them. And so you're thinking, what is that all about? Is he just going to leave them in the lurch? But this is Exodus language, right? He intended to pass by them. And what does he do? He declares his name to them. Don't be afraid. I am. This harkens back to, you know, Moses asking God to reveal himself, show his glory. God says, you can't see my glory, Moses, but I will, you know, uh, hide you in a cleft of a rock and declare my name to you is basically what God tells him. And so he does. He declares his name to him. Uh, and then, anyways, chapter 6 is followed in chapter 7, Jesus once again delivering somebody from a demoniac, one of Satan's troops, which is followed again in chapter 8 by Jesus feeding a multitude of people a second time, but this time in Gentile territory, showing that uh, it's not just Israel that he's come for. And this is all followed by, in Mark 9, by Jesus taking three disciples up the mountain, just like Moses took three people, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, up the mountain, uh, uh, you know, and, uh, there they meet with, you know, the Lord descends and in, in the cloud. And, uh, what's interesting though, and I, I, I know I need to be quick here, uh, cause we're winding up, but, uh, uh you started, I love it, bro. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good. Uh, and if you look at Exodus 24, when Moses is told to come up the mountain, God says something curious to Moses. He says, come up the mountain to me. Now, when you realize and keep in view the fact that God is the speaker, this is not what you'd expect. We usually just read right over this, but God is speaking, and he says to Moses, come up the mountain to the Lord. That's what he literally says. He doesn't say, come up to me. He says, come up to the Lord. He speaks of the Lord in the third person. So he's telling Moses to come up the mountain to the Lord as if the Lord were another. Now, in the immediately preceding context, God told Moses that he's going to send, he says, I'm going to send my messenger, my angel ahead of you, and he'll prepare the way before you. And then he says, don't rebel against him because he won't pardon your transgressions since my name is in him. And so God tells Moses and the people of Israel, this is, these are the words that he tells them, you are to listen to him. Okay, don't rebel against him. Listen to him. Don't rebel against him. He won't pardon your transgressions. My name is in him. Now, the word angel in Hebrew doesn't mean necessarily a created uh, being. It, it's, it's just a term referring to somebody who's sent, who comes from another. And so, for example, when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush and Moses said, what is your name? God says, I am who I am. Well, in the context, it tells us that was the angel of the Lord. So it's a divine theophany. Right? The one who came and spoke to Moses was God himself, but he's called the angel of the Lord, and that happens frequently in the Old Testament. Well, 
So here's this one that God refers to as my messenger. He says, this one bears my very name and has the prerogative to uh, demand absolute obedience and to punish rather than forgive any transgression. This one has this authority. And then Moses immediately after that is told, come up the mountain to the Lord. Okay. The one who bears his very name, that's who he's talking about. Now, why is this significant? Because when Jesus takes the disciples up the mountain, you might think that he's being portrayed as a new Moses. And there's a sense in which that's true. He is a new Moses, but he's more than that. And that becomes apparent when two figures appear, right? One of whom is Moses, right? So now uh, Moses is there with the disciples and Elijah is with him. And the father descends in a cloud. And what does he say? This father speaking from the cloud says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Right. It's the same words, same exact expression. And so for Moses, this was like deja vu. Right. <laughs> this is happening all over again. He's told to come up the mountain to the Lord and he's told to listen to him. And here's Jesus again. Moses is present. Now, interestingly, the other person that's with Moses is Elijah. And Elijah in the Old Testament is another figure who had an encounter with the angel of the Lord on Mount Sinai. And so that is partially why Elijah is there with Moses. Both of them encountered the angel of the Lord on Mount Sinai. And so here it is being played out again. Uh, so that's just an example of what I mean now when I say Mark's gospel is far more profound to me than I initially realized. And there's stuff like that just all over the place that, you know, every day it's like it, you know, something new is like, you know, wow, I didn't see that before. And, and a lot of that, and this is a plug for Dr. Morales's book, a lot of that, um, you know, his book was the catalyst for, uh, he, he just helped me start thinking along these lines. And, uh, so I'd encourage anybody to get his books. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, what a promotion right there, you know? I mean, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, the, the, I love biblical theology because it just shows the, the majesty and style, the uh, majesty and style. And, and, you know, a lot of people, when they hear that in like the confession, right, they're like, well, what, what's that? That's a mark of self-attestation. Like that makes no sense. Okay. It's beautiful. Okay. Okay. Like who cares? <laughs> Something else, you know, some other literature could be beautiful, but it's like those things, you know, if you don't understand all that, you, you wouldn't, you know what I mean? Of course it makes sense why they wouldn't see it, but they're not regenerated, but we can, you know, and it's beautiful. It's uh, majestic. It's captivating. Um, and to seeing God's, you know, it's, it's written by man, but there's that sense of the double meaning, right? Like God has this bigger, picture of of what he's doing with the text that just reveals uh just glorious amazing things and connections with the old and the new and yeah it's pretty phenomenal stuff yeah i i'd i'd comment but that will take us a whole 10 minutes <laughs> yeah well yeah well we'll definitely have to do this again man this has been a lot of fun um, yeah covered some fun stuff some uh islam and muhammad and allah and some open theism and some uh, you know, uh, a little biblical theology, get people excited. Maybe they'll go purchase all these books we were talking about. So, yeah. 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 
Yeah, man. Well, this has been good. I'll probably cut the recording here. Is there any last words you want to say to the audience? No, thanks for having me on. Um, I'd say pray for my upcoming trip, but by the time you air this, I'll probably already be there and back. <laughs> yeah, it's possible. But, uh, yeah. You can pray for me. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All I right. do have to, I do have to be with Eli and Rob Bowman. So sure. prayers are definitely needed. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to need it with them guys. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're great brothers. Uh, yeah. Eli's a good buddy. He's kind of uh, what inspired me to kind of start my own thing you know okay so, yeah i was watching him listening to him for a while um talked to him back and forth a little bit and i was like yeah i'm gonna maybe i'll start my own little thing it seems like a fun hobby to do you know yeah yeah you know, especially getting your local church involved and it's it's real cool because my local church listens my pastor listens it's just fun and then being able to dialogue about the conversations we have and yeah it's really cool so yeah yeah that yeah. sounds cool yeah well, all right. Uh, well, this is Rooted in Revelation podcast, where we seek to make God's revelation our foundation in all of life. Until next time, God bless.